Hello and welcome to the Highway to Health show. In today's episode, I am joined by Mary Sheila Gunella. She is a holistic nutrition consultant who is also trained in clinical Ayurveda, adrenal support, and amino acid therapy. During our conversation, we explore a lot of different topics from an impromptu talk about fermenting foods to different nutritional recommendations. We specifically talk a lot about the role our hormones play and how they interact with the nutrients we consume, the challenges surrounding diabetes and obesity, and why people struggle so much to lose weight and keep that weight off. I really think you're going to like this episode. Now, before we go on to listen to today's episode, though, let me remind you that last week I was joined by Paige Kinsella. We spoke about her journey through autoimmunity, eating disorders, people-pleasing, and codependency, among many other things. That was episode 28. And before we can jump in the fast lane of the highway to health, let me also remind you that this podcast is fueled by your contributions. And no, I don't mean monetary ones, although I should. I mean by the questions you ask and the reviews you leave for us. Remember to go to dre.show forward slash rate and leave us a review. It really helps us get noticed and reach more people. But anyways, let's not keep you any longer. Here's my conversation with Mary Sheila Ganella. And remember, you're on the highway to health and I'm your guide to get you there. Are you ready to live ageless? Want to discover alternative health choices, cutting edge nutrition, and fitness for the entire family? Welcome to Highway to Health Show with your host, Dr. E, the stem cell guy, where Dr. E helps you live ageless. And now, here's your host, Dr. E. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Highway to Health Show. As I mentioned in the introduction, my guest today is Mary Sheila Gunella. She is a board-certified holistic nutrition consultant, but that doesn't tell you half of the story. Mary Sheila brings over 12 years of experience in the nutrition, health, and wellness world, and I'm sure she will share with us the information, insight, empowerment, and support we need to take charge of our health and live the life we are meant to live. Wow, that introduction sets the bar pretty high. So Mary Sheila, why don't you say hi to our listeners and share with us a bit of your journey as a health professional? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I have been doing this for a long time. And like many people in the field of health and wellness, we often come here because we have a story and whatever modality usually we use is what we end up wanting to share with other people. So for me, it was food, it was nutrition, it was coming from a place of kind of more of the standard American fare to learning how to farm and garden and use food as medicine and to really heal my body. Yeah, so I became a nutrition consultant, and then I also studied Ayurveda, which is the science of medicine from India, which has been sort of, I like to just say, it's like peeling the onion even deeper, because you really get into the elements of hot, cold, wet, dry, and it really opens up how to heal each person bio-individuality. So for me, nutrition became a huge piece of my healing. I love fermenting food and I'm really into traditional food preparation and, you know, just anything whole foods. I love to eat and cook and share food with other people. That's great. We just had a couple of weeks ago, probably another great episode. And my guest at the time, she was talking as well about fermenting foods. And it's something that I'm very, very interested in. And for some reason, I just never take the plunge. I mean, I do eat like sauerkraut and kimchi and all those things, right? Kombucha. But kind of like doing it at home, I don't know, it kind of sounds daunting. Is it daunting? 
You know, it's really not. And it's funny because I started fermenting. So I had a whole history of antibiotics and I needed to fix my gut microbiome. And it was even before the gut microbiome was a word. I just knew my bacteria were out of whack. It was also before you could buy all the different ferments like we can today so openly. And so at the time, I just knew when I read about it, it was that gut instinct, I need to do this. And actually, to me, it's even less daunting than canning or anything like that if you've done that. But it's really about creating the perfect environment for the microbes that are already present on the plants. So you create the perfect microbe environment with water and a little bit of salt and the vegetables. And within a week, you can have beautiful ferments. I just put up a bunch of pickling cucumbers. So I'm making some pickles. And it's really fun. I'm actually making some fermented cashew creme fraiche that I'm going to sweeten with a little rose water and turmeric for an Ayurvedic cooking class that I'm teaching this weekend. So it's fun. (laughs) Oh, that sounds good. So here's the thing. Isn't like super high maintenance to be fermenting these things and you have to be like on top of them for a couple of days. And what is it like? So if you can kind of like walk us through. Yeah. So basically you take your vegetable matter. So if you're making a sauerkraut, you got to pound it a little bit to bring out the water, but whatever you're making, you put it in a jar and you throw whatever herbs and spices you want to put in there and you got to push it down because it's an anaerobic process. So you don't want to have any oxygen, push it all down, get all the air out and throw a lid on it, put it on your counter or sometimes a coldest spot, depending what you're making in your house And you leave it there for three to five days, like three, if it's, you know, warmer, hotter, summertime, five, if it's wintry and it's kind of colder in your house, after three to five days, you throw it in your fridge and you have a kraut. So it's maybe a half an hour to an hour of time of mixing it all together and making it how you want it, throw it on your counter. And then you just kind of check it out every day and, you know, say hello, maybe burp it a little bit and then throw it in your fridge. So it's actually not that hard. (laughs) Not hard at all. Now that you're mentioning it, I'm surprised that, like I said, it sounds daunting and it sounds kind of like, you know, you'd be, I don't know, playing with fire kind of in a way because you're growing bacteria there. So actually that brings me to another question. It's not necessarily what I wanted to talk to you on this episode, but it's also super important or super interesting for me, at least. Is there a risk of actually fermenting for too long or fermenting too much? I would say like, let your taste buds be your guide. You know, if something doesn't taste right, then it probably didn't come out right. I've had a few times where things didn't come out right. And I usually had pinpointed, oh, too much salt or, you know, I'm not sure if I pounded it enough, got all the oxygen out um, or the air. So sometimes you can have, or something's too far and it's mushy and it's wolf and you, you just let your taste buds, maybe more so your taste buds than your nose, because ferments don't always smell great when you first open them. It's like, oh, what is that smell? And then as far as, you know, ferments in general, I like to have the reminder of, think of them as a condiment. Ketchup was originally a ferment. Think of them, you know, a tablespoon or two on your plate at a meal is perfect. When I first started fermenting, I was so into it and I needed it and I was eating so much. And I remember my husband once said to me, he said, honey, you kind of smell like sauerkraut. (laughs) That's when I said like, I'm like, that's not very sexy. Like, I don't know if I want to smell like sauerkraut. And that's when I then realized, oh, okay, maybe I'm doing too much. Maybe I've done enough. And, you know, ferments are hot. So they produce more heat in the body and that's good. But like, you know, if we do too much heat, we can dry ourselves out. So, right. It's always a balancing act. So some ferments like yogurt, which I like to make yogurt too. Yogurt is 
wetter, cooler ferment than maybe like sauerkraut or, you know, hot sauce if it's fermented, right? Awesome. Well, so thank you so much for the crash course on fermenting. It is definitely something that I really want to start playing a little bit with and using as well, because I realized the importance that our gut has. Like I said, just a couple of episodes ago with Kathy Biase, we spoke about gut health and my background also dealing with children with autism and all these dysbiosis that they have. It just brings up that awareness. And as a traditional trained doctor, they graduated a little bit ago, but not that long ago. We were not taught about the microbiome, the balances and how it affects our moods and our even, you know, our weight and our anxiety and all these different things. So it's something that's very, very interesting to me. But there is one thing mainly that I want to talk to you in this episode about, and that is diabetes. Diabetes is shockingly common with numbers like one in three adults or something like that, right? And so I want to get started by asking you kind of a warm-up question. Why do you think diabetes has become such a problem recently? That's a good question. One of the things I'll say is that, and I say this a lot when I teach, is we're up against a lot when it comes to the food that we're eating. Number one, most of us have not learned about nutrition in school. We didn't grow up with nutrition classes. Maybe we took some in college or anything, but you know, we put all this importance on learning where all the states are and all these different things, you know, or the continents, right? But oftentimes we don't even know where our liver is or what our pancreas does and what it needs to survive and to thrive or what we need to survive and thrive. So we didn't learn this in school. And most of the education that we've gotten is been from marketing. So we've been just really marketed to, and you know, the front of labels are all about the health benefits of all these processed packaged foods. So we're kind of up against a lot in that. And, you know, in the seventies, we went from a, maybe cooking more of our own food to really outsourcing it. So that outsourcing means we're eating a lot more processed foods and we're not marketed to with the beneficial foods. And, you know, a lot of times too, our healthcare model there's room for a doctor or a nurse or something to say, you need to eat better and exercise, but we don't always know what that means. And then, you know, we have the web and there's so much information. So I think a big part of it is the foods that we're eating and the foods that are quick and easy and convenient in our busy lifestyles, as well as to, you know, even our stress levels gone up because we can really connect stress to diabetes as well, because stress is like kind of an inside job and it plays an inside job in the body. You know, it's like dominoes, right? It, when we're really stressed, it creates a domino effect on our endocrine, our hormonal system, which is ultimately sort of at the root of diabetes. Yeah. And, you know, I think you're absolutely right when you talk about that transition that happened somewhere around the 60s, the 70s. As a matter of fact, just a couple of days ago here, and we're in Southern Spain, so in Alicante, right? And the beach is right here. And somebody showed a photo of what that beach looked like in the 70s. And you didn't see anyone, you know, everyone's without a shirt, right? You don't see anyone or very few people who are overweight. You don't see anybody who's obese. And then you walk down there right now, and you rarely see, there's very few people who are not overweight, who are not obese. And a lot of the world thinks that this just happens in America. And truth be told, you know, in America and Mexico, where I'm from originally, it is a lot more common, but it's all over the place right now. I mean, it's not just isolated anymore. It's not just the Americanized diet or the standard American diet. It's become the world's diet. So I think that is a very big problem. What do you think 
as a health educator, what do you think it is our roles right now in this regard? Well, I believe as a health educator, the more knowledge we have, the more informed and choices that we can make. And knowledge truly is power. And I agree. I think that's you know one of the number one issues of our time. So the more people start to know and understand the foods that they're eating and how they're interacting in their body, then they can decide and make different choices than they may be making right now. Yeah, exactly. I always say that we have a responsibility to educate our patients. And those times when patients would go in to see a doctor and the doctor would just kind of sit in his high chair and say, you need to do this because you have this. And the patient would leave following those directions. Those are long gone. I think our responsibility right now is to educate these patients and to tell them why whatever's happening is happening and what they can do to reverse it and how their body works. Because you're absolutely right. We're not learning this in school. We're not learning this anywhere else. And if us as health educators don't take the time to educate these people, the marketing companies will, the food manufacturing companies will, just like they've been doing. And then this is not to say that they're evil. It's just that's their business. They need to sell more product because that's what they're in business for. So they put these ads out. And I find it shocking, for instance, when you go to these diabetes conferences and Coca-Cola is the official sponsor or you know, McDonald's is sponsoring the Olympics and, and all those kind of shocking things which absolutely make no sense. But the problem is that for most people, it kind of makes sense. It's like, oh, there's healthy options in McDonald's. Like, no, there's no healthy options in McDonald's. There's no healthy sodas. There's no healthy of those things. So I have to agree with you. I think it is our responsibility to educate people, to empower them, because you said that knowledge is power. I think that knowledge is potential power, but you need to give them tools to actualize it, to understand it and to do it. And that's why I I put together this podcast and that's why I keep doing it. And that's why I'm so grateful to have people like you who donate their time to come on and share all this information with us because it is so, so, so important to get it out there. Now, Usually, when you talk about diabetes, people immediately start thinking of somebody who's overweight and who's obese. And of course, we have a lot of overweight and a lot of obesity. But in your opinion, what's the difference between the overweight person who develops diabetes and the overweight person who doesn't? Because you've got those two groups per se. So where is the difference? Does being overweight lead to diabetes or not? Because some people are overweight and not getting it. Yeah. And some people are not overweight and are getting it, right? And so I think it has a lot to do with, there is a huge genetic component to it. Through our evolution, not all of us were agriculturalists or hunter-gatherers. And so, you know, it tends to be often the people that were more of the hunter-gatherers or having the thrifty gene, as we kind of talk about it sometimes, they have the propensity to store more of any of the sugar that they eat and are just much more sensitive to carbohydrates. And, you know, going back to what you were just saying, you know, a lot of times when doctors did tell people stop smoking or do this or do that, they actually did do those things. They said, okay, I'm going to stop smoking because it's not good for my health. And my doctor told me not to. And what the doctors were saying for a long time too was eat low fat, eat low protein and eat high carb. And that's kind of what got us into this mess, right? And when you have that situation of, you know, low protein, low carb, I mean, I can remember in like, I don't know, the 80s or probably like late 80s, early 90s with my dad, he would buy, you know, fat-free cookies and we would eat them because we were dieting and thinking we were doing the right thing, right? 
And that was the message of the time, which is very different than it is today. And this is where it's kind of interesting because when you think about, just to circle back to your question, when you think about blood sugar balance and you think about what does that really mean? So if somebody has high blood sugars in their blood, right, maybe they're going to develop diabetes, maybe they won't, but ultimately they're eating higher contents of sugar whether it's just refined carbs or even not so much refined carbs. So they have more sugar in their blood. If you think about your blood, right? We are mostly water, just like we're like the same percentage as the earth, right? So our bodies are about 70% water. All that water is our blood and our lymphatic fluid, but our blood flowing through and nourishing, right? And oxygenating every single tissue and cell in the body. So if that blood is higher in sugar, whether or not we develop diabetes, it's higher in sugar. That means the quality of our blood is not as good as it would be if it wasn't that high sugar. That means even if the sugars stay high longer, our blood might become thicker, means it might be harder for the nutrients to get into the tiny little crevices and veins and vessels of like behind the eye or in the extremities in through the filters of the kidneys, right? All those things matter. And so for somebody who maybe doesn't develop diabetes, right, but maybe they still don't, they're eating the things that other people would completely get diabetes from, they still might not have the same energy and life force and, you know, brain capacity and physicalness, for lack of a better word, of just somebody who might have diabetes and their cells are struggling to get the energy from the food that they're eating. They're not able to. So their cells are starving and they're tired and they can really feel the effects where somebody else might be like, well, I'm fine eating these things, but where would they maybe be if they weren't eating those things? Exactly. But they're not. Actually, that's a great example because a lot of the times people will abuse their bodies. We will abuse our bodies. I mean, I, we're not perfect. I'm not perfect. I've, I've, you know, quite a bit of abuse. And the thing is, we think we can take it. Like for many years, for instance, especially I remember when I was in med school and I would consider myself able to sleep three hours, four hours. As a matter of fact, I had this weird idea and I said that four hours was kind of like the devil. So if I only had four hours to sleep, I would rather just stay up for another hour and just sleep two or two and a half so that it would be like kind of like a power nap or I needed to sleep like four and a half or five, right? And because I was surviving on it, I figured, oh, I can do it. I can totally do it. Drink a cup of coffee at night right before going to bed and, you know, full caffeine and still fell asleep. So I said, oh, caffeine does nothing for me. Like, no, you could be so much better off. And I think that's where the big challenge comes because people suddenly think that, well, I'm immune to this because I'm not feeling as bad as somebody else. A perfect example is gluten. So obviously, if you're not celiac, you're not going to have those terrible, terrible problems that you have. But for instance, my wife, and she's Spanish, that's why we're in Spain right now. She grew up eating bread and eating all those things that are so common here, right? And when she moved to Cancun originally, and then when we were in California, we got off bread, we got off gluten completely. And that was that. And now when we came back, even though we're in Spain and it's different, the kind of reaction that she gets in Spain than what she gets when she eats bread in the US, but she bloats up and she realizes that she's like, oh my God, I can't believe I was probably having the same reaction every time. I just never put two and two together. So how common is that? Right. 
Absolutely. It's so common. That's something that happens in the body where we don't even notice the symptoms, right? We just live with a low grade headache or we just live with bloated bellies and not even realize it until you take it away and then you bring it back and it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like smokers who put up with a constant cough. They're always coughing. You're like, oh, it's just the way it is. Like, no, that's, that's what you're doing to yourself. But going back to what we were talking about, blood sugar, what does it mean to balance your blood sugar? Because that's also something, I mean, we talk about diabetes and blood sugar being too high and your blood being too thick and all those things. But we also know that we need this glucose, not necessarily like people think that it's like table sugar, but we need this glucose in our blood. So what do you mean when you talk about balancing your blood sugar? Balanced blood sugar, one of the ways that I like to teach too is I like to talk about what does a meal look like, right? And our hands are a certain size. We have a certain size hands and they're actually a similar size to our own stomachs. And so it can be kind of a guide of how much to eat. And when we balance our blood sugar, basically we have our hormonal system, our whole glandular endocrine system. So we've got our hypothalamus and our pituitary and our pineal and thyroid and thymus and pancreas and adrenals, right? We have all these glands and what they're doing in the body is they are keeping us balanced. I call them our first responders. We all have our own team of personal first responders. If I am stressed out, they're going to fire and travel through the blood to help me manage that stress. If I am cold, they're going to all fire and send messages to help my cells get warmed up and my mitochondria to become like little engines and turn on the engines. When the sun goes down, I am going to start to lower some of those hormones. My body's going to notice the light change so I can go to sleep at night. In the morning, the opposite's going to happen. So blood sugar is another thing. Our body needs a constant source of energy. So we have a sort of a constant, you know, about a range, right, of blood sugar that we want to have our blood be in. So when we get our blood tested, it's either it's too high or if it's too low, it's either insulin resistance or diabetes or it's hypoglycemia. So we keep this range. And so our body is always regulating. And if it starts to go low, we can sometimes feel kind of spacey or hangry, or we get stomach growling, all those things can happen. Um, if we get too high, our body is also going to activate on the inside to lower it down. So we're always trying to find this constant range. So what that means, though, is that's going to happen no matter what. Our body's going to strive. And if we're not feeding our body the right things or whatever, then it's going to be an extra stress for the body to be like, oh, we got to manage this thing. And there's many ways to achieve this. I know there's not just one way because a lot of people are fasting and doing all kinds of eating keto and eating all kinds of ways. But in general, when you have a meal, like when you eat breakfast and when you eat lunch and when you eat dinner, it's about balancing your macronutrients, right? So just briefly, it's about saying, I'm going to have a little protein with my meal, maybe about the size of the palm of your hand. Protein kind of stabilizes your blood sugar for a little while because protein takes a while to digest and break down. And you have a little bit of a starch with a meal, right? So there's your other palm. That would be like a root vegetable or a grain or a bean, right? And again, it's like a quarter of your meal, of your plate. It's not the whole thing. It's not like, you know, a ton of bread or a ton of pasta, right? And then you also want to have some green vegetables, right? Some leafy greens, that's about half of your plate. And you want to have some fats. And so having a meal that has a balance of your macronutrients will give you the goal is to give you that stability to keep a balanced blood sugar for, you know, 
till the next meal, four hours, six hours, and not so much like if you have a meal and you're just like starving an hour later, well, there's probably some blood sugar issues going on there. And the goal is then you're giving your body what it needs to say, oh, I'm good. It's nice and balanced and I'm hungry. Before the next meal, it starts to dip down, you eat again, and you just kind of keep this nice flow. It's not so much like eating a pastry and a sweet coffee beverage in the morning and having it drop down and then having it come back like that, right? That's hard on the body and that's all happening in the cardiovascular system. So that's where it starts to damage and kind of flood into, wow, now I'm having high cholesterol and high blood pressure and all these other things that can happen as a result of these swings. In your perspective, the real issue or the big issue right now is all these different glucose and insulin peaks and crashes, correct? Yeah. And this is also what explains, and it's good that you bring it up because a lot of people don't realize that sometimes when they go out and they have this very heavy meal, especially it's a very carb heavy meal in the middle of the day, right? And they go out and they have tacos or they have the breads and the French fries and all those things. And then they go back to work and they're falling asleep. Well, what's happening is that your blood glucose is shooting up. And so your body has to put out a lot of insulin to kind of like keep it down. Just like you were saying, you have your first responders. They're like, okay, there's too much sugar. So we need to get rid of it, put out a lot of insulin. And what that happens is that they end up putting out more insulin than they need because they need to lower it super, super fast. So your glucose crashes. And that's why people are dozing off in their desks. And this is incredibly common. As a matter of fact, a lot of people kind of like recognize like, oh, well, I just ate like, <laughs> but that shouldn't be happening. <laughs> now you mentioned something about macronutrients. There is this tendency right now to be kind of like dogmatic about most of these things. And you touched briefly upon that. But what do you think, in your opinion, your experience, what do you think is a right proportion of macronutrients for us to kind of like be consuming? And I know it's a range and it, you can't be incredibly strict, but what do you think is the attic ratios? Yeah, without using percentages, because I feel like that might be confusing. I'm just going to go back to my little example. When you have a meal, and I use this all the time, like I have my little book from my last class, like I'm all about like using your, let your hands be your guide, right? So when you have a meal and you have protein, I like to recommend, and I like to just think of it as a meal rather than thinking of like the whole day, because be present with that moment. It's three to five ounces of protein, you know, or maybe it's between 15 to 30 grams, right? At a meal. And again, some people don't need as much and just depends where we are in our life, our stress levels, all of those things more if you're more stressed, right? And then when you think about a starch, and sometimes our proteins are vegetarian, you know, it's not always meat. So sometimes it's vegetarian. So that's where you want to kind of look at the grams. And then with a starch, it's a quarter of your plate, or maybe it's between a half a cup to a cup. And sometimes it could be none. And it could even be like up to a cup and a half, again, depending a little bit on your blood sugar balance and your goals. So and it's a quarter of your plate. In the case of women, and sorry to interrupt, in the case of women, also the time of their menstrual cycle, right? Because that affects and you know they will crave a little bit more. And I think also listening to yourself, sometimes if you have those cravings, it's for a reason. I mean, the one craving that I don't agree with is sugar because that's never a good sign. But some other times, if you're craving certain vegetables, if you're craving certain kind of foods, it's for a reason. Would you agree with that? Yeah. A lot of times I think it's a mineral that's within that whole food that you're eating. Like example, chocolate is really high in magnesium and magnesium is a great mineral during the menstrual cycle because it helps 
relax the body and we're most usually deficient in it. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll have a little, I mean, I don't have menstrual cycles, but I will have a little piece of chocolate at night a lot of the times because magnesium also helps sleep. Yeah. So I'll do that. Maybe I'll get some raw honey as well, keep my blood glucose there. So those are all, you know, kind of things that you start learning. I think that part of the problem with all this information, like we were saying earlier, and we think that information is power, but also it can mean overwhelm when you're not well equipped to digest at all. And I always say that to my patients. I say, you think that you go to Google, it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose. But in reality, it's kind of like drinking from sewage because sure, there's water there, but most of it is crap. So you need to be very, very careful about what you're paying attention to and not be overwhelmed because really it should be a lot more intuitive. I was just going to ask you about all these different dogmatic views of it's all about calories in and calories out, or you need to go keto, you need to go vegan. And the problem is that every single one of these diets, they have people who have succeeded following it. So then everybody else is kind of like, well, what do I need to do? And you talk about something like this, and I wanted to ask you, what do you think is absolutely necessary for someone to lose weight and keep it off? That can be hard because a lot of times people have tried everything and they done this yo-yo thing where they've done something really restrictive, which can sometimes starve the brain and make the cravings even worse the next time. What I like to tell people too is in order to really to be successful with weight loss, one of the things that has to happen on the inside with your team of first responders is that insulin needs to drop down. And cortisol also needs to drop down because if we're super stressed, it's going to actually bring insulin up. And it's a kind of a whole system. I won't go into it, but we need to bring our insulin down, which is what is released from the pancreas to grab onto the glucose that's in the blood and sort of escort it to the cell, unlock the door and let the sugar in. So insulin needs to come down. So that's key. And that really does stem with balancing your blood sugar first. So to me, that solid, like, let's get you solidly balancing your blood sugar For me, like when I work with somebody, I like to get them to that foundational place. That's a foundational place. And then once we're there, we say, okay, you know, what do you like to eat? What are your genetics? What have you tried before? What conditions do you have? Then we might say, wow, you might be a good candidate to try keto or to try a low carb thing. It's usually a low carb thing. Or, you know, you maybe want to try something that's more vegetarian because that's really how you, that's where your heart is. And so it's all those things because you want somebody to feel good about what they're eating. There's nothing like saying, well, I hate that, but if you think I should eat it, I will. And I'm saying, no, (laughs) if you don't like it, let's not have you eat it. But if you can find that baseline with blood sugar balance, which is, you know, keeping it steady and stable, then you can start to use some of the principles around some of the different diets that are out there and then find one that might work for you. But even then, sometimes you have to tweak that a little bit because the body's metabolism doesn't always stay exactly the same, right? It likes the variety. So it likes to sometimes be fasted or maybe sometimes be feasted to kind of turn things on and get things moving a little bit. Even if you look back at it from an evolutionary point of view, we evolved having seasons. We evolved not having mangoes year round. We evolved 
with all these different changes around our environment, so it does make a lot of sense that even our diets weren't the same throughout the year. The availability of certain foods, the availability of certain animals, it just didn't exist, right? So I think that going back to those origins do make a lot of sense. Now, what are your thoughts? Something that has become very, very popular in, you keep mentioning about every meal and three meals. What are your thoughts on intermittent fasting? Yeah, I'm a big fan of intermittent fasting. And I will say that I have been, sometimes I start people off where they are and I'm, you know, we change up their meals and then, you know, move them into intermittent fasting. And sometimes it's quicker, but what intermittent fasting does is it puts us in a longer fasted state that allows the body then to pull from our own resources. And if weight loss is a goal, then that's a great way to go. And, you know, there's a lot of health benefits as far as just cells breaking down and sort of some cellular cleanup that happens when we fast. So I think intermittent fasting can be a really powerful tool in weight loss and just health management in general. And can anybody try it? What are your recommendations? I mean, I do intermittent fasting. We've talked about this before here in the show, but I've had a couple of people contact me and ask and say like, well, you know, I've struggled with weight or I have a food addiction or I have all these problems. Should I just fast? And my first thought is, well, not on your own and don't just get started like that. Always get help of a professional who can be there. But what are your thoughts? Like if somebody came in kind of like that scenario, would you recommend to start with uh, intermittent fasting? You know, I think what would be a great start, I agree with what you said, you should always check and make sure it's safe for you because there are going to be some conditions where people might need to eat more regularly. But if you just even start with 12 hours, right, which doesn't even sound like maybe it's an intermittent fast, but where, you know, if you finish your dinner at 7pm, you know, you don't start eating until 7am. And that means if you're eating till nine or 10, you know, you might want to bring that down or however you want to vary that, right. So 12 hours is a great starting point and a safe starting point. The body can really adapt to that. And the reminder that the body has adapted to fasting, like you said, ancestrally. So it's not as super dangerous. There are going to be some conditions, but from the 12 hours, then you can slowly kind of edge it up a little bit. And I think that's a safe way to go. If you're like, oh, I don't know if this is safe for me and I'm a little concerned, just start it with the 12 and then gradually just work your way up. And then you might say, wow, now I'm fasting for 14 hours. And you know, now I'm fasting for 16 hours. And you can really feel how that feels in your body. And now would the proportion, let's say that you get to a point where you have a restricted window, six hours, would your recommendation of proportion size for your meal, would it be the same? Or would people eat the remainder of their like daily calories per se? Because a lot of people do that. They do the one meal a day. And then when they sit down, they have almost all three meals together. So is that okay? Or would you recommend against that? Or Well, I think what happens when we do one meal a day is we start to correct our appetite that might have been totally sort of disordered to what got us into where we were in the first place. So somebody has a lot of extra weight. I think what I have noticed is that at first, sometimes people will do that, like the beginning. Like when I've done that, when I started doing one meal a day, which I do sometimes, it was like, <sighs> give me some food. And then you start, your body starts to get used to that, right? There's different kinds of hunger and your body starts to know, okay, like I'm not going to eat till later and things adjust internally. 
the thing about the one meal a day, as far as I know, is it's not so restricted on like how many calories you should have. It's more about really tuning in and feeling what you need for your body. The other thing though, when you're only eating one meal a day, your stomach is going to have a little bit of shrinkage. So if you eat the three meals all there, you might not feel that good. Your stomach has to mechanically churn and chemically churn. And if it's so full, you're not really going to be able to unfold the proteins and make the kind that you need to make. So I think it's a little bit more about really tuning into what feels good. It's about slowing down and eating mindfully. And if you feel like it's eating till you feel like you're full, it's really not setting up all those rules that you've had in the past that have felt restrictive and haven't really worked. It's about saying, I think I'm feeling good and I'm full now. And if you're eating less calories in that window than you would if you ate it in a full day, then your body's going to be able to burn more fat. And that's going to contribute to a healthy weight loss as well. So in the end, in your particular view of things, you lose weight based on calorie deficit. Because if you're restricting calories in the end, you know, what you're saying, you're restricting the time that you're eating so you can eat less calories than what you normally would. Would that mean that that's what's leading to the weight loss? And I'm just trying, I I don't particularly, I'm not a proponent of the calorie deficit thing. I don't think that a calorie is a calorie because if somebody eats a thousand calories of Skittles, it's not the same as somebody eating a thousand calories of any other proper food, right? But there seems to be this debate that no matter what you do, the end of it is that you're cutting calories and that's why you lose weight. What I would say is if you are fasting and you're just eating one meal a day, I think people might at first maybe eat as many calories that they would eat in a normal day. But I think generally people are going to eat a little bit less, but I think it has more to do about that. You have that shorter window when you burn through those calories, what happens in the meantime, it's more of the, it's a combination. You might be, some people might be eating as many calories, if not more, but some people are going to be eating less, but it's that fasting window that is going to help to jumpstart the metabolism and get the body into the ketosis state. I see. There was this book I read, must have been like 10 years ago, called The Warrior Diet. And it was one of the earliest proponents, at least that I heard about the one meal a day thing. But what he said is that you would literally just fast for the whole day and then you would get to dinner and you would eat as much as you wanted. The only rule that basically they had is that you start with a salad. They said, just start with a salad. And obviously, well, that fills you up. That's a lot of volume. And then you can eat pretty much whatever you want. But then again, it's there's also that hormonal and biochemical signals that junk food can deliver, whether it is very little calories or a lot of them. It's still all that. And before we continue <laughs> kind of like branching off, I did want to ask you about those hormones because they play such a big role in diabetes. And you talk about the rhythm of hormones. What does that mean exactly? And how can we honor it? Yeah, that's my kind of question. (laughs) It's funny because in the world right now, there's a lot about like biohacking, which I totally think is cool. And I want to bring the feminine of like, honor your hormones, honor your metabolism. So every gland and every hormone has a rhythm, right? So cortisol, as we know, is high in the morning, and then it comes down in the afternoon and evening to allow us to sleep. And insulin is actually low in the morning naturally, and it goes like this. So that we have this like, and I explain this in my breakfast report on my website. Leptin also has a rhythm like this, right? The other thing about hormones is any hormone, if we produce way too much of it, 
the body has a defense system and we will resist it. So that's why there's insulin resistance and things like that. So we've got these rhythms. So when we have our first meal, again, whenever that is, if we're fasting, in order to honor those rhythms, I am a proponent of having protein, fat, and fiber and not having starches because if our insulin is naturally lower, then if we raise it up right away, then we kind of throw it off of its rhythm. Same thing with leptin. So sometimes when people have, and you can see this play out, sometimes people have a sweet dessert, they crave sweets all the rest of the day because they're kind of a little more resistant to those hormones, right? So we do well having protein, fat, and fiber earlier. And then I believe because of these rhythms, we do better with having a little starchier at night in the evening or even fruit later in the day that will, we have more insulin to sort of deal with those starches. And then those starches are also very soothing to the nervous system and can enable us to have a better night's sleep. So when people have sleep issues, having a little more starch, whether it's a grain or a bean or a root vegetable or whatever with dinner can also really help put the body into more of a sleeping mode. Yeah. Sweet potatoes are great at night. Pretty much all of these, you mentioned uh, biohacking and the recommendation is to eat your carbs at night and to avoid them earlier in the day. And that makes so much sense. And I was meaning to ask you about what is this breakfast report that you have on your website? So tell me a little bit about it. Yeah. So my website is Occidental Nutrition and uh, my breakfast report, it's really me kind of trying to explain how to have your first meal to honor your hormones and to really balance your blood sugar. And it's a change up of instead of having dessert for breakfast, have dinner for breakfast. So have something savory, have more proteins and fats. So that's sort of the big why or the big what I recommend, but then really explaining how your metabolic hormones are working in the morning and at night so that you can honor those rhythms. And it's really sets your body up for success. And it's one way to really create more blood sugar balance throughout your day, right? And that's the key right there, I think. I mean, it's there's an Ayurvedic proverb that says something like this, where it says, if you have a good morning, you have a good day. If you have a good day, you have a good life, right? And it's just setting ourselves up with that first meal. And again, the breakfast might be later whenever you break that fast. But when you do break that fast with foods that are really honoring those rhythms, you're telling your first responders, okay, you all are doing a good job. You know, you don't need to work overtime right now by having, you know, this sweet breakfast or whatever other things we might do. You're all good. And then it helps with cravings later. It sets you up for sleep. It just puts them all into a good place for the day. That was going to be my next question, because a lot of the times people, when they hear somebody say something like what you just did about having a savory breakfast and that it's a full breakfast, it's not kind of like just coffee and a croissant they think that it has to be in the morning. And really breakfast is the meal that you break your fast with. So you can have bacon and eggs, but it can be a 2 p.m. or 1 p.m. or something like that. Would that still fit in your recommendations? Yeah, it does. It really does. And it, it's sort of like your the warrior diet that you were just mentioning, you know, start with the breakfast, get your fiber in there, you know, get some protein, sort of ground yourself out first, right? Instead of having the first thing that comes in, do something like this right? Have something that comes in to keep you steady. Like your body's been burning fat for fuel. Usually by the time you wake up in the morning, if you've burned all your glycogen, your body's working on some really good, clean fuel. So you want to continue that clean fuel. You know, you don't want to put some bad 
gas in your car or something like that, right? Exactly. Yeah, I totally agree. And just like with everything else, I mean, even if mentally you set yourself up for the day and you plan ahead and you know you write down what you need to do, your day flow is so much better. So when you also start metabolically treating your body well, respecting your biology, which is you talk about it, about honoring your hormones. And I always talk about respecting your biology. A lot of the times we're looking for that convenience and that search makes us not respect our biology or try to go against our biology. When in reality, this is just the way we are. I mean, not a lot we can do to change it, right? The easiest and the most effective way is simply to respect it and to thrive based on it. So anyway, I think we've covered a lot of ground today. I am very, very grateful. And I do want to acknowledge you for taking the time to coming here and sharing this with us. Like I said at the beginning, I think that it is our responsibility to do this, but not everybody feels the same way. Not everyone wants or likes to be out there. So I really want to acknowledge you for being so gracious, for spending the time, for explaining it so well. And I'm sure that everyone else here is also very, very grateful to have you here. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And I appreciate what you're doing too. So thank you. Thank you. Now, before we wrap things up, where can people find out more about you? You mentioned your website, but do you have any other programs or trainings or Yes, Oxidol Nutrition is my website. I also have a Facebook page that I do a lot of cooking videos on and also a YouTube channel that is kind of just getting up and running where I'm putting videos. So it's all Oxidol Nutrition. I do my blood sugar reset every year, sometimes twice a year. So I just had my class a couple of weeks ago. I'm also teaching some Ayurvedic nutrition classes with another colleague, one of my Ayurveda teachers, and that's called Edible Ayurveda. That's coming up and it's going to be online in the new year. So you can reach out to me that way. I also do one-on-one work with clients and help them have the, you know, really change their picture when it comes to their blood sugar. I love doing that as well. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for sharing those. I'll make sure to link to all those things in our episode description. So for everyone listening, you can just go down, scroll down to this episode description and your podcast app, and you'll find the links to everything there. And you can also see the links in our website, uh, the complete show notes and the transcripts and video and everything at dre.show forward slash 028. Now, before we wrap this up, and I totally forgot because we were having such a great conversation on other things. I normally ask our guests to share with us, what are your top two or three recommendations for a person who wants to start taking control and balancing their sugar? What do you think are the top two or three actionable things that they can start doing pretty much as soon as they finish listening to this episode? One I would say is what I just talked about with the first meal, protein, fat, and fiber, you know, and think about your plate really being good about that first meal, which sometimes it's easier in the morning for us to really stay connected to our goals. The second thing I would say is don't do a lot of eating in between meals. That's a great time to hydrate. <laughs> so hydration between meals, and that's going to be really good for the digestive system and kind of keep you full, not thinking about food as much. And probably I would say if you can create a cutoff time for when you're going to be done eating, if late night eating is something that you struggle with. So if you want to say, you know, 7 p.m. or 8 p.m., whatever it is, you know, earlier is better, but whatever that is, and just kind of draw a little line in the sand and be like, okay, I'm not going to eat after this time. And again, if right now you're like, oh my gosh, I eat until whatever, then just start slow. 
always start slow so that your goals can be reachable. Don't do something that's so far from your reach that you don't think you can do it. Start slow and celebrate when you are successful and keep going. And don't beat yourself up when you are not successful. Also, you know, recognize those things and, and you know, you're making changes. So I think those are great suggestions, especially eating late at night, because even then, if you start kind of like pushing your latest meal to an earlier time, you can also figure out or, or end up going to bed earlier, which is never a bad thing. So those are great, great, great recommendations. With that, Mary Sheila, thank you again so much for stopping by. It's been a pleasure having you. I'm sure that everyone listening has enjoyed this episode. For those of you listening to us, remember that you can find the episode notes and everything down in this episode's description. So just scroll down on your podcast app or go to our website. Having said that, I hope you have a great week and I'll see you here next week. Thank you for listening to Dr. E's Highway to Health show, helping you learn the science of living ageless. Did you enjoy the show? Please like, share, and subscribe where you listen to podcasts. Dr. E wants to hear from you. Go to dre.show. Again, that's dre.show. Until next time, this is Dr. E's Highway to Health, helping you live ageless. And this has been episode 29 with Mary Sheila Ganella. If you enjoyed our conversation and would like to learn more, make sure to check out the show notes and the links to everything we mentioned in this episode's description. Before we go, remember to please take a moment and leave us a rating and maybe also a review. You can do that by heading on over to dre.show forward slash rate. Thank you all once again for tuning in. I look forward to seeing you here next week. I'm Dr. E, the stem cell guy. You are on the highway to health and I'm your guide to get you there.